Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Dr. Janice Perlman. Janice is an internationally recognized expert on urbanization and informal settlements. Her award-winning book, Favela, Four Decades of Living on the Edges in Rio de Janeiro, is based on an in-depth study of migrants and squatters over four generations. And her earlier book, The Myth of Marginality, changed thinking about informal communities worldwide. It was the first publication to show an insider's view of life in these stigmatized communities. And since its release, the book has been translated into over a dozen languages. Janice is the founder of the Megacities Project, a global nonprofit designed to shorten the lag time between ideas and implementation in urban problem solving. And she was a tenured professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at the University of California, Berkeley. Janice holds a BA in Anthropology and Latin American Studies from Cornell University and a PhD in Political Science and Urban Studies from MIT. Janice, welcome to On Cities. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Janice, where did you grow up and how did this experience influence your thoughts about cities? Well, I grew up um, in Forest Hills, Queens, in what you might call a um, wartime public housing project, but at that time they referred to it as um, garden apartments, with a garden with little strips of grass between these high-rise brick buildings. And when I was eight, we moved to Long Island, as many people did in the post-war period, um, when subsidized mortgages were available and highways were opening up and there was this quest for free and high quality public schools. So um, I found suburbia very boring. We were only 30 minutes by train to New York City, which I found very thrilling and exciting. And I would go to Hootenannies in Washington Square Park and see jazz places and museums, galleries. They were handcrafted leather and silver workers all over. Um, and every time we crossed the Triborough Bridge, it was like entering a magical realm, another world. So I always had this thrill of the city and the excitement and energy of the city. And when I was 15, I had my first opportunity to experience a culture outside my own. And I was in Oaxaca, Mexico for three months over the summer. And that was transformational. That's what got me into anthropology and made me jump at the opportunity when I went to Cornell to um, sign up for this Latin American theater tour where I got to travel around the Central and South America with a student group producing a little play called How to Grow a Musical. So was it that experience in Oaxaca that eventually led you towards what would be a lifelong interest in the city of Rio and its people? Yes, as all of our lives are, one thing leads to another. So the experience in Oaxaca attuned me to apply for this international theater tour. And while I was on the theater tour, one of the countries we went to was Brazil. And Brazil is very problematic politically at that moment. So um, Kennedy, who was president, designed it so that half we were the American National Theater Association. So half of our time, six weeks, was in Brazil all over the country. And when I first got to Brazil, to Rio de Janeiro, 
I took one breath of that air and I felt like I'd come home. It was love at first sniff. And I just felt a kinship. And so um, after I came back from that trip, I looked for an anthropology undergraduate opportunity to spend um, time in Brazil. And I went to the interior to a place called Bahia, Arambepi in Bahia. And it was there that I saw that the young people who, when I first arrived, all wanted to be fishermen as their parents or work on the with the hoe and the agriculture, had all of a sudden wanted to go to the big city where the action is. And that was because they got the transistor radio. And these were very isolated places. There were no roads. There was no mail. There was no anything. And when that radio started to come into their lives, every all the kids wanted to go to the big city. And then I was 20. And I thought, hmm, I bet this is going to happen all over Latin America, Asia, Africa. And my lifespan is going to span a huge movement from the rural to the urban areas. Mm. And indeed it has, because your work um, for five decades now has focused on the study of informal settlements, particularly in Brazil. And today such settlements are home to over a billion people, which is staggering when you think about it. It's nearly a seventh of the world's population. And that number is projected to triple by 2050. This reality seems to be the result of rapid urbanization, and it presents us with both lessons as well as serious challenges for the future of our planet. Janice, for those who are listening, which, um, you know, Voice America, it's an international audience. Um, how would you define an informal settlement or as they refer to them in Brazil, a favela? Well, that is a profound and wonderful question, simple though it may sound. Um, there is really no perfect definition. First of all, there's a huge variation within every favela, and then there's a huge variation among them in any one city and, of course, among countries. And they have specific names, like Gechikandu in Turkey and um, Kampungs in Jakarta and um, Villas de Miseria or Pueblos Jovenes in various parts of Latin America. So whatever name they have, they are usually places that were settled by people coming into the city who could not afford to live anywhere else. And so they are kind of defined by people making their homes and communities in places that were so undesirable that neither the state nor the church nor individual private owners was taking care of that land. And they build their communities there. Um, I guess one of the um, one of the common factors is that they're always seen as illegitimate and undesirable, and the biggest policy response has usually been to eradicate them. And um, the other interesting thing is that when they are eradicated and people are moved to public housing projects or little lots with prefab walls or pieces of houses, those are also start to be called favelas too, even though in those cases they are not illegitimately occupied. They are either bought or rented. So it becomes a kind of stigmatized word for undesirables. Um, and I guess you could say that um, the, the, the definition of favela or informal settlement has evolved because first it was um, impermanent materials, lack of water, lack of electricity, lack of this, lack of that. And as favelas over these 50 years, the world over has consolidated and now they have five-story brick buildings and they have running water and they have electricity and um, they're still called favelas and they're still often blank on people's maps and they're still um, areas of um, people who live in favelas are stigmatized from birth for being from a favela and if they want a good job they have to borrow someone else's address because once the job interview gets to where do you live, if they mention where they live and it's recognized, they can't get the job. I want to say that over four generations, the only stigma and source of discrimination that has persisted equally high is residence in a favela. Discrimination by color and by gender and even by place of origin has gone way down across the various generations. But 
living in a squatter settlement or a favela is still seen as extremely negative. Well, let's delve a little deeper into that, because again, I think you have an extraordinary background insofar as you haven't only researched these um, settlements from afar, you've lived in these settlements. And so I think you have a very unique perspective, one that many of our listeners certainly uh, would not have. So Janice, um, from reading your books and from speaking with you, I've learned that you lived in three distinctly different informal settlements in Rio. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more? Can you try to describe these uh, settlements for us, maybe physically or socially, and maybe the kinds of lessons you took away from from being part of that community? Absolutely. Well, um, I, I always wondered what would happen to these people from the rural areas who were almost all illiterate and very poor. What would happen when they came to the big city? And I got the chance to look into that for my doctoral dissertation. And I followed, I met the trucks and buses that came into the city from rural areas and followed the people. And then I noticed there were three different places they could go. Usually they went where they had someone they knew in one of, in some place and they try to find them. So the, the first place I found that people go to was the South zone, right in the middle of the richest um, residential neighborhoods and near the center of the city. And there I studied a hillside favela called Catacumba. In the second place I studied was the North Zone, which is an industrial area. Um, And I studied a favela called Nova Brasilia. It's a lot bigger space, a lot less dense. There were room for little um, raising chickens or pigs or and various plants and fruits. And then the third place was way out in another municipality called Caxias, where people could actually <clears throat> afford to buy a plot of land and own it, even though it wasn't urbanized. So half of my um, people I interviewed, they were from these ur- unurbanized lots and the other half from favelas. The first thing I want to say is that everyone told me to be very scared of these favelas and even taxi drivers would not let me off anywhere near. They were scared and um, that I found I felt so safe and so protected and well taken care of. I could leave my camera anywhere. I could leave anything anywhere. Everyone would watch over everything. And everyone thinks these places are dirty. These people were meticulously clean. They cleaned and swept their houses several times a day. and even though it was very steep in Catacumba and it was very muddy and they had, there were no stairs. They had to come down the mud or the dirt to get to the street at the street entrance. There was a standpipe for water. They would hold their shoes in their hand and walk down barefoot and then wash their feet in the water and then put on their shoes. And um, Catacumba, which no longer exists because it was removed in 1970 due to the fact that it was in a very desirable area, which the construction industry figured out how to build on. And so they were put in public housing. Katakuma was um, very beautiful. It was really built in a kind of um, individual construction of houses, but they were all the same material and more or less the same color palette. And each one had faced a breeze and looked at the lagoon. And it was very solid, community ties because they had to fight to stay there. They had to fight to get water. They had to fight to get public lighting. They had to fight to get electricity. And um, so it was very, I would say it was a really wonderful place. Everyone could work because women could take in laundry from the surrounding areas and do the laundry and while watching their kids and the men could work in the construction of the city. And so it was more or less a full employment, highly salt solitary community. Um, Nova Brasilia, which is now part of the Complexo del Limão, a group of um, 11 favelas that is now considered one of the most dangerous places um, in Rio, um, was also a wonderful place. And the people were wonderful. I lived with families in each place, and I saw it from the inside. And I have to say that when I lived in the countryside, it was a lot harder to get um, sufficient protein in the diet. And it was a lot 
the prospects of upward mobility for the children was a lot more difficult. There wasn't anything, they couldn't even become literate in the schools. So over generations, these um, people who went to favelas, although they looked like they were in misery, they were thinking about their kids and grandkids as my own grandparents did when they came from the old country. And um, so they were really willing to put up with a lot to get better opportunities for their kids. And the same in um, Cassius, just very interestingly, the people who owned their own lots in Cassius versus the people who um, made favelas had no lifetime difference. In fact, the people in favelas had greater lifetime outcomes because they had more um, collaboration and help, mutual help among one another. The people who owned their lots were um, much more individualistic. And since they had no collective struggle for various things, they kind of withered on the vine. So that was really a counterintuitive finding. Mm. And also perhaps the in Catacumbe, the proximity to the urban core allowed for um, access to a greater diversity of individuals. And did you find that that um, played any kind of outcome over time in terms of upward mobility? Absolutely. It was so interesting that anyone born and raised in Catacumba had a much better life outcome than anyone born and raised in Nova Brasilia in the North Zone or in the suburbs, because exactly because of that, because they made contacts with and went to the homes of the kids they played soccer with or the kids they went to school with. And so they had um, connections bridging social capital as well as bonding social capital. And um, I was very excited to read a New York Times article in um, August 2022 about a huge study Harvard had done. I think they studied 21 billion friendships, and they showed that cross-class friendships were a better predictor of upward mobility than early childhood education, school quality, job availability, community cohesion, or family structure. They loved this finding. Poor children who grew up in places where people have more friendships that cut across class lines earned a lot more as adults than children who didn't grow up in such places. And that, when I wrote that in Favela, that finding, um, people were shocked that it made such a difference. But of course, we know location, location, location. And that's what it came down to. You've got to be near where the where the opportunities are and where you can mimic the dress, the the physical posture, the way of speaking of people in the middle class or upper classes. Mm. Maybe it also attests to not only what you know, but who you know, who can advocate for you, right? Um, yep. And that and that's true for all sectors of society, I would argue. Um, so it's very interesting to hear you say that. Um, actually, despite the fact, and and again, your research and your books, uh, or through your research and your books, you've been a longtime advocate of favela dwellers and their communities. Um, however, I came across a recent article that you wrote entitled From Demon to Darling child of the dark or model for sustainable cities where you were compelled to address the over idealized or what you refer to as a kind of over idealized version of favelas as icons of sustainable urbanism. And you set out to challenge the realities that you witnessed on the ground in contrast to the projections of this ideal. So can you describe this uh, recent article in light of what you were just speaking about um, in terms of living within these communities? Absolutely. Well, first of all, <clears throat> as an advocate, um, I wanted to say that people usually think that the favela residents are the people who were pushed out of the countryside because they were so poor or starving or there was a drought. Or, um, but mostly they are the best and brightest of the people in the countryside who have the mental ability to imagine a better life and the wherewithal to get um, on a truck or a bus and come to the city. So I always call them the cream of the crop rather than the bottom of the barrel. And so that's one big um, reason why 
But I always advocate that you shouldn't look at favelas as the failures. They look at them as the successes. Um, the other thing I wanted to just say quickly is that there is no post-COVID scenario um, for favelas because during COVID they had to work. They were the frontline workers. So every no one could isolate and work from home. And so they were out there. Um, and even those who didn't have running water, and they had no room to isolate. We'll talk about this later. But I just wanted to say that there was um, there was a kind of solidarity that I do I do stress, even though what I'm about to say is that the over fetishization of favelas um, by recent sociologists and some architects and some planners and um, some journalists is very upsetting to me because um, most aspects of favela life, like their light footprint ecologically, are the result of necessity not and scarcity, not choice. It's not that they set out to say, we're going to model a sustainable green city. And most favelas have almost no green at all. They, they would love to have green, but they're so dense. Um, so there's new urbanism that calls them that let's say values sustainability high density low rise proximity to the city low cost living close knit communities strong favor family ties strong neighborhood ties i can see how they would these things fit favelas very well yes it's low cost close knit communities um some are close to the city some are in center some are not but um and they these favela tours that many people take show the most, the best located favelas because they're close to the upscale hotels and easy to get to. And they have favela tours and they have views of the water and they remind people of Positano. And um, if you've never been to any other place except one of these favelas, you don't know that the rents there are higher than in many places of the formal city. And it's not exactly a miserable place to live. Um, and um, only ignorance of reality can allow you to say that favelas are a model for future sustainable city planning. Um, and I think it's embarrassing that famous architects, sociologists, environmentalists um, think that they can expound on what a favela is or what the future of cities should be after a day trip or maybe a few days covering visiting this when they're at a conference. Um, if they think they can understand a favela from that, much less ad advise UN Habitat or other agencies about how to build half-finished concrete blocks that the favela people can finish because they build incrementally. So I got so furious when I was part of a, um, a book called Informality Now, and I read the, the brief that we were supposed to write in our chapters, and it was all this brief that could never have been written by anyone who'd ever been in a favela. And then I started noticing that this idealization was just this longing to have a magic bullet. And if we could only make the cities look like this or upgrade the squatter settlement so they are just like Positano, that would be great. The only reason that they're not more gentrified and more people don't buy them up, which of course we have had many opportunities to see, is that they're not legal and you can't get insurance, and there's some um, insecurity, and there's some violence, and there are some problems. And otherwise, this like German guy bought 59 houses in the favela of Vigigal, hoping to turn it literally into a big Positano until the government intervened. So it's a mixed bag, but I would say that um, it's very pretentious to use a famous person's name and have them say these things. Um, without knowing what they're talking about. And I, I found it extremely disrespectful to the people who live there. Yeah, I mean, you said a lot in that answer, Janice. And I think 
I mean, we can try to unpack some of what you you said. I mean, I think that when you describe a place like Catecumbe, right, your first, the first favela that you lived in, um, being on a hill town, you talked about its compact parcelization, right? Small parcels. You talked about the narrow streets. You talked about it facing the breezes. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, the views, uh, the sense of community, um, the kind of a, a number of factors that you typically associate with more vibrant uh, urban communities, right? So you see how um, some of those parallels could be drawn. And that, But I think what I'm hearing you state is that um, to make any kind of meaningful contributions or, th or have any meaningful thinking about um, these settlements, one has to spend a considerable amount of time in these settlements um, to get through that first layer of experience, you know, that happens when you do, let's say, these favela tours. And I think that's what I'd like to delve into, actually, in the second half of this interview. I mean, we're going to take a quick break, uh, but when we return, we're going to continue to speak with Dr. Janice Pearl on the role of informal, informal settlements in an increasingly urban world and the best ways to contribute to improving the lives of millions who live in these settlements today. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I am continuing my conversation with Dr. Janice Perlman, where we're going to be discussing the role of informal settlements in an increasingly urban world, and hopefully try to address the best ways to contribute to improving the lives of millions who live in these settlements. So Janice, just prior to the break, we were talking about um, your work uh, for the last five decades, really studying carefully the informal settlements in Brazil and actually throughout the globe. Um, and it seems to me when I hear you describe it, that sometimes the question of the informal settlements is, you know, a wicked problem, as they say. Um, and I'm curious, do you think that squatter settlements are simply the inevitable byproduct of rapid global urbanization? Or in your opinion, do you think that anything can be done to reverse this trend? 
Yeah, wicked problem it is. Um, if you see squatter settlements as the physical manifestation of a cities that are created and perpetuated for the elite, in my first book, I call them the citadel of the elites, um, then you understand why these, quote, riffraff, these low-income people coming to the city are so problematic because they destroy the the pristine um, and safe image of the city, uh, while on the other hand, make the city function and make it possible. So it's sad to me that decent, affordable housing with basic urban services should become an, um, a luxury only for the elite. It should be available to anyone in a city. And if the cities had um, basic policies that provided for, and we see this is very rare, affordable housing at various scales, um, we wouldn't have to have squatter settlements and people who don't have access to sewage or running water. Um, and in that light, um, almost every country in the entire world has tried to limit city size and tried to limit urban growth. Since the post-World War II boom in urbanization, um, it mostly starting in the 60s and then accelerating in the 70s and 80s, um, they have tried various things, including rural development, decentralization, growth poles, new towns, new capitals, or um, forced relocation in, in Java, or closed city policies. Closed city policies meaning that they use command and control economies to prevent people from entering the boundaries of the city. And none of these has proven effective, not one. Even in those command and control policies in um, in China, in the U, former USSR, Russia, people manage to bring others into the city. They share their apartments, they divide their rice rations, they move in the dark of night, they create false passports for in apartheid settings. And even the most logical seeming solutions like investing heavily in rural development have shown that yes, they do improve the life quality in the rural area, but they speed up out migration. The more you have schools, factories, healthcare, and um, better communication systems in a rural area, the faster the out-migration is. Because the more people get the idea, hey, this is cool, let me go to where it really is happening. And um, in current, my current, in my research in the last, oh, 10, 15 years, it's been very obvious, well, all my research, that um, anyone who doesn't like it in a favela can certainly return to the countryside, and they don't. They don't want to. They don't want to go back. And the people in the countryside, when I visit them, when I go back to the countryside with favela residents to see where they came from, it's much, much worse. And there's um, all kinds of malnutrition, inbreeding, mental problems. So um, I think that China had it right when they said that the idea would be to equalize the level of living in countryside and city. And I think that's what the World Bank and Inter-American Development Bank tried to do with their rural development programs, um, but it just not doesn't work um, because it's impossible to create the same opportunity structure in a rural area or even small towns as it is in a big city with all these intersections and inter interstitial opportunities. So um, without economies of scale, even these growth poles that... Um, England and all many countries have tried to do, they don't take off like planned cities. Um, they become kind of homogeneous and a bit dead. And I wanted to um, say that I often speak to policymakers, especially in India, who extol the benefits of rural life. And it's kind of a Gandhian thing. And um, But when you ask a planner or politician or academic to leave the city and move to the countryside instead of just having their... Um, vacation house there, um, and you ask them how they would feel about sending their children to a rural school or having their parents undergo surgery in a rural hospital, they would never think of that. As much as they love the countryside, they want to live in the city, and poor people are the same. They vote with their feet when they settle in the city, and um, if you ask them, they they look at their lives as so much better than the lives of people where they came from. So it's very hard to get 
traction on this idea of how bad it is in the city and how much better it is in the supposed countryside. I'm sorry to say that many international agencies are still hoping to keep people or entice people to stay. And even Japan, the richest, one of the richest countries in the world, is having a lot of trouble keeping people in the countryside. And even these very wealthy, specialized farmers who are doing lettuce by computer analysis of which market for which kind of lettuce every single day, they can't get wives to go and live in the rural areas for these rich farmers. So yes, I think um, youth having a life in a favela gives you much more opportunity. And um, I don't think that rural sector improvement will um, help people um, help limit city growth. The, the growth in Latin America is more or less peaked. In Asia is in its middle and Africa is still going to be growing. Mm. You know, you, again, uh, it seems counterintuitive what you're saying. Um, and I am not an expert on the topic. And of course, you've spent, yeah, again, five decades um, exploring these ideas. So um, I think in your answer, what I hear is, you know, it's the the un- um, the the kind of undeniable pull of the city, you know, and what it has to offer. And maybe as maybe I'd like to turn a little bit because earlier you you spoke about, I think a number of well-meaning professionals, you know, including architects, planners, journalists, sociologists, um, that you believe are proposing maybe ineffective solutions for informal communities in the long run, I would say. Um, so I think most people at least this is my belief, they go into something thinking that what they're doing is really going to benefit. Um, maybe because you stay long enough to see the outcomes of the projects, maybe your perspective is different. So given your experience, um, both in the favelas um, and also in founding your megacities project, what what have you come across as being, you know, successful, you know, projects or where do you believe professionals should focus their efforts to be able to make more meaningful contributions? Well, first of all, I think there's room for any professional in any field to make a meaningful contribution um, if they're willing to live in the place and work with the people there um, to really get grounded in the reality. And that takes time. And in many public projects, um, that type of working with the community and participation and creating a social contract with the government that has teeth, um, that's usually eliminated in large squatter upgrading projects or sites and services, because even if they have huge budgets, by the time they get underway, they're usually six months or nine months behind because they didn't count setting up the office on site and hiring people. And so they cut out a lot of the baseline information, the participatory process. They think that's fluff. And then they just go on ahead and they don't consider the continuity, what's going to happen, who's going to maintain these projects. Um, so one of my thoughts is that maybe it would be more sustainable if you invested in people and in the community and in human and social capital and not in physical infrastructure. And perhaps um, if you want to really deal with the urban future, you have to deal with um, alleviating poverty, injustice, inequality um, by education, by dedication to cross um, class collaboration, by job, special job training that guarantees at the end of the training, you'll have a job. The um, the things that just do physical upgrading, like this wonderful favela biro project that was the model for around the world for urbanizing on site. I saw the most beautiful outcomes. And then 10 years later and 20 years out, everything is disintegrated because no, there was no agreement between the state and city governments of who would maintain it. The people were led to believe that it was going to be maintained by itself. They didn't feel ownership. They didn't have a decision-making role. They didn't get paid for the upkeep. And so they were worse off after 20 years than the favelas right next to them that had never had this expectation and had never had all this investment, which is extremely, extremely sad. And um, 
I guess um, an example of how <clears throat> you could, something that worked was in Medellin, the, what worked was that there was a long-term, I mean, six or eight years of working with the gangs on two, the two opposing sides, working with um, the social workers, massively working in the communities before they had the cable car and the fancy library, and before they had all this connection of where these people lived in this um, part of the city and where the jobs were. When they tried to imitate this, oh, the Brazilian government thought this was the cat's meow. The people from Rio went there, they loved it, and they decided we're going to have a cable car in Nova Brasilia, one of the favelas that I worked in. And they put those cable car stops in the old random place that was good for policing and good for them. They ruined the commerce. All the main commercial areas that had been built up over years were uh, were eliminated to make this cable car thing. And no one used it, and it did, it it just became an eyesore, totally wrong scale for the community. And why? Because they thought that this little trinket was the magic bullet, whereas the real magic bullet was all this groundwork with the community for all these many years beforehand. So I think one of the problems is political. Who's going to get the applause and the ribbon-cutting opportunity? Um, what how to have a continuity, like in Jaime Lerner's case in Curitiba, he had his office planners and he had so many um, consecutive roles in the mayorality and then he became the governor that they had a chance to implement social and um, urbanistic projects. But most places, every time the the administration flips, the, the new administration says not invented here. So Janice, just for those that are listening that might not be, I just wanted to underscore what you just mentioned, because you are actually referring to all of the urban improvements that took place in Medellin, Colombia, under the um, government of Fajardo, who was an extraordinary politician at the time. Um, and I'm, what I'm listening to you is that, of course, this project, the cable car project that would connect the lower valley to the, let's say, Upper Hills, where a lot of the informal settlements were located, was a uh, extraordinary infrastructural project, transportation project to be able to connect the cities. Um, and it's gotten a lot of press. But what you're saying is that what doesn't get a lot of press um, that attributed to the success of that project was the all of the groundwork that took place years prior to be able to bring the community along as a partner. Is that correct? Exactly um, and that when 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 we just take that idea and try to transport it, like in the case of when it was tried, you tried to transport it to Brazil, it failed, even though it's the exact same, um, let's say, physical infrastructure, because it didn't have any buy-in from the community and it wasn't delicately stitched into the fabric the way it had been in Medellin. And then to the point about Lerner, I find it interesting, particularly in Latin America, which is that there it's successful because of political continuity, which oftentimes, of course, in Latin America and in other parts of the world, um, rarely happens because a new regime will ultimately eradicate all of the policies of the previous regime. And these kinds of city building efforts take multiple um, kind of generations of politicians, at least, to be able to execute. So I think those are really two very tangible um, and excellent examples that those in the audience could certainly do more research. And of course, you're doing some of this work with your um, Mega Cities project. I don't know if you'd like to share the mission of this organization that you founded, um, I think, 30 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's right. I wanted to say one more thing, though, about to your earlier point. The problem is that it's not a lack of ideas. There was a very good idea. All these ideas that started, they were even around when I did my first research in the 1960s. I did my first research in favelas in 68 and 69. One of the ideas then was that you had, quote, sites and services you would get land prepared to receive migrants and you would put in a grid of um, urban services, water, electricity, and a road, uh, at least unpaved road grid, and then let people build their own houses there. Um, 
And then there was another version of that where you'd put in a hydraulic wall that already had part of the house built a wall with the connection. And then there was another version where you had core houses, which were little houses. And um, why did those fail? They failed because the only place that had cheap enough land to acquire was too far away from the center. And when you come into the city and you spent all your money getting there, you have no cash and no money, you need to be near the city center where you can earn some money, even if you're just washing windows in the car or juggling on the street corner. And you can't afford to be in a place that you have to take a bus, but you can't afford to get to the city, or maybe there isn't even any transportation. So all of these schemes, as beautiful as some of them were and as well-conceived, had no chance of success when income was the first thing needed and proximity was the way to get the income. So, I mean, it's just like um, the civil rights uh, struggle. They were so um, concerned about livelihoods here in the civil rights movement, which we don't hear so much about. We hear more about the Black Lives Matter part, but the struggle for civil rights was a lot of struggle about um, economic justice. So anyway, the reason I started the Megacities Project was exactly about this. Because in the 60s, when I did my research in Brazil, many other people were doing research all over the world in, in, um, in Asia, in Africa, in, all over Latin America. The first generation of scholars who lived and worked um, in the squatter settlements, we all proposed leaving the squatter settlements where they were and not removing them because we all saw that these could become the new working class neighborhoods of the city and the, the actual heart of the uh, city's functioning. And many books came out about that. And it took 20 to 25 years until that idea reached public policy. And the World Bank and the international agencies were the first to adopt it. But that was when our students became young professionals in these agencies. And I thought I was asked to write an article about the evolution of housing policy for low-income housing. And I it struck me that there had to be a better way to shorten that lag time between knowledge and practice or idea and implementation. And how could you do that? And I thought, well, in my life, the best ideas that I've ever had come from seeing things that work on the ground. What about if there was a network of people scouting for solutions to urban problems on the ground in their own cities, and then they could exchange that and the cities that were stuck on one or another problem could come and meet with the cities that had gotten that solved but had other problems. And so I created this network called the Megacities Project. I decided to start with megacities. It was 1987 when I conceived of this, 86 and 87, when it was projected that there would be um, as 23 megacities with over 10 million people each by the year 2000. And I thought that's a small enough number. We could get that one person from each of these in the same room. And then I had this image of people um, creating little pockets of looking for success that would give hope instead of despair. Because just like everyone else, when you look at the rate of in-migration and the ability to service the current population of these cities, and they were growing exponentially, it all does paralyze you. And I was sitting at Berkeley being a professor and these city planners and mayors would come to see me in my office and ask what to do and to about this or that. And I said, well, I, I don't know, but I know out there, there must be some, some tried and tested solutions. So the Megacities Project, I created teams in each of the, I started with 10 and then went to 20 megacities, the biggest cities in the world. And we figured out, a methodology for finding success stories. And then we met every year and exchanged these things. And then I, I found money to have people visit who wanted to learn something, go and visit the place they wanted to learn from and stay for a week and bring it back and adapt it. So we never under any circumstances said, this is best practice. This is what you should do. And because of that, we were able to thrive and really help hundreds of thousands, millions of people. 
And when the World Bank took this over in a hostile takeover, UN Habitat took it over in our 10th anniversary, um, and they called it best practices. And they decided that they would let each city mayor choose the best practices and give them awards from Dubai. That pretty much ended that until the guy who did that hostile takeover retired. And now we're coming back and doing this with the next generation of urban leaders and urban innovations. And it's it's quite thrilling. We're calling it MC squared. That's mega cities times mega changes is MC squared is energy. So Janice, for those that are out there listening, where can they, how can they connect with you if they want to learn more about what you've written about, what you're working on right now, or if they wanted to somehow become a part of MC Squared, how can they connect with you? Well, um, first you can find out about us on our site, www.megacitiesproject.org, all one word. And um, secondly, you can... um, you can on that site there's a way to express if you're interested in learning more or becoming part of the project and i would be happy to get um personal emails from people really interested at my name janice.perlman at gmail.com because i'm really i'm really thrilled to have participated in this and i want it to be continuing um long after I'm no longer here. And I have to say that it's wonderful to wake up every morning and still look forward to what you're doing because it's fascinating and complex. And um, I think anyone who who in, embarks on something like this, you never want to stop because it's just life-giving. Um, Janice, we- there, well, there is so much more that we could talk about, but we are coming to the end. And so I ask all of my guests... Um, this one final question, uh, and in your case, Janice, what is your favorite city and why? Well, I never met a mega city that I did love. They are chaotic and conflictual, but they are creative. They are dense. They are disorganized, but they are diverse. They are unjust. They are unequal, but they are so innovative. They are messy, but they are magical. And because of this combination of diversity in proximity and unexpected serendipity, they offer the greatest opportunities and their combination of scale and density and diversity and energy and unexpected means means that megacities are always evolving and always thrilling. And I love them all. I love them all. My own megacity is New York City. My megacity of choice is Rio de Janeiro, but I love them all. And I invite everyone to celebrate instead of excoriate the joys of being in such an exciting, energy-filled location. Well, Janice, your enthusiasm is palpable. And I want to thank you for your lifelong dedication to this work and for bringing to light the realities of informal settlements in Rio and beyond, as well as highlighting the stories of those individuals that call these settlements home. Um, Next week, please join me when I will be speaking with the Miami-based educator, architect, and preservationist, George Hernandez. We will be discussing the critical role of historic preservation in America and its importance in creating more sustainable cities and environments. Thank you again, Janice. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 